my name is Patricia King and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi folks, uh, Chris Rosebeer here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, May 2nd, 2012. Mm-hmm. Kind of a straightforward, normal edition of Fighting for the Faith. Not sure what to make of that. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Um, there is a, uh, a rash of really bad ideas just running rampant throughout the church. Uh, they're being, it, these are ideas that are being published by Christian publishing houses, uh, you know, the, they are being entertained and passed along at Christian leadership conferences in college chapel presentations and things like that. And we've got a problem. We've got a supreme problem here. And let me, let me, let me kind of frame it this way. I remember a long time ago, okay, I had, I was, you know, sitting in a restaurant and what well, was it? The Starbucks. I know where I was. <laughs> I can remember now. You're going, okay, listen, Grandpa. Yeah, I know. I'd, I'm a grandpa, right? So, you know, my, my memory kind of wanders. But I was thinking, where did this happen? And now I remember. Back in the day when I used to live in San Clemente, California, um, I was at an outdoor coffee shop. There's a, you know, there's, if you go down Pacific Coast Highway, as you're coming into uh, San Clemente, the town, you know, kind of on the outskirts of it, uh, heading south on Pacific Coast Highway, the, uh, right there at North Beach, there is a little coffee shop, and they sell Kona coffee and all kinds of different uh, coffees, and and it's like one of the local hangouts. And so I was 
there and uh, sitting outside enjoying a cup of coffee and uh, just in taking in the Southern California sunshine. It was a beautiful day. It wasn't too hot. It wasn't too cold. And the wind wasn't going crazy and the smell of the ocean. And you can hear the waves just crashing on the other side of the train tracks there at North Beach. Ah, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was taking a, taking a, I could, it's like I'm there right now, but I'm not. I'm here in the Midwest and it's hot, muggy, and buggy at the moment. <laughs> With the thunderstorms have come, the humidity. Anyway, so I'm sitting out there enjoying a cup of coffee and there's two guys and they've, <laughs> they've got some kind of a weird book open and they're discussing it. And, you know, you, you hear, overhear the words Jesus from time to time or they overhear the word God and thinking, are they kind of having a Bible? What are they doing? You know, and so you know, I um, don't. I don't recommend this. I just kind of asserted myself. Hey, what are you guys studying? Oh, we're having a Bible study. Really, what book of the Bible are you reading? Oh, we're not. We're reading this such and such book by uh, the guy who runs the Dream Center in Los Angeles. Like what? <laughs> what? You're having a Bible study, but you're reading a book by a guy who who runs the Dream Center. What's the Dream? See, at that time, I'd never even heard of the Dream Center, and I I now know what it is. But anyway, so it's like you know, you and the the thought you know afterwards it was running through my mind was, how on earth do you claim that you're having a Bible study while reading somebody else's book? It just doesn't make sense. I mean. There's times when I will, you know, I'll, I'll grab a systematic theology or a dogmatics text or uh, something written by Martin Chemnitz or uh, Melanchthon or even the confessions of the uh, of the uh, Lutheran Church in the uh, Book of Concord. But I don't when I'm reading all of those things, I, I am not under the impression that I'm having a Bible study. You, you get what I'm saying? A Bible study requires you to well open the Bible. You, you got to open it. And and that then would mean that you don't just open it and have it sit there flapping in the wind. You have to actually read it. You know, a Bible study implies is part of its name that you're studying the Bible. And what's happening in Christianity is there's a whole lot of people saying a whole lot of things about God and their ideas do not have its origin or their origins in scripture what god has revealed they these are just ideas kicked around so we got theologians theologizing without any biblical texts and you can't do that uh, <laughs> it's like wait a second christian theologians are supposed to be expert exegetes at an understanding what god has revealed in his word in context we don't get to make stuff up it's Listen, when it comes to doctrine and theology, God does not give extra points for creativity. In fact, that's the thing that gets you in trouble. Fidelity is the thing that's called for. So when a Christian teacher or a theologian or chapel speaker or pastor comes to you, you know, claiming to want to teach you something about Christianity, the Christian faith, the Bible or something like that, they had better have an open text, and they had better be reading you stuff in context. Otherwise, they're not really engaging in Christian theology or teaching Christian doctrine. Christian doctrine doesn't have its its origin in the mind of the Christian. A Christian theology and Christian doctrine 
has its origin and its center, its meaning, its focus, all on a correct exposition of what God has revealed in his written word. If somebody comes to you and starts talking Christian theology without biblical texts, they're not engaging in actual Christian theology. They're engaging in philosophy. And philosophy is, well, that's just man-centered stuff and it's not really going to help you. Um, it's not going to sanctify you. There's no power in it. And oftentimes, the uh, lifetime project of philosophers is to deconstruct, combat, uh, debunk, come up with reasons to not believe the Bible and instead believe their ideas. And so, you know, listen, we, we don't need philosophers in the Christian church. We don't. We don't need modernist philosophers. We don't need postmodernist philosophers. What we need are faithful men, men who will faithfully open up God's word and teach the text. Tell us the story. Tell us what, you know, what has happened to humanity. What has caused all of the problems and what is God's solution in in Jesus Christ? And to open up the biblical texts and read them, proclaim them, preach them, and even plead with people with them. You understand what I'm saying? The idea is this, is that my ideas, they can't save nobody. I'm part of the problem. Your ideas, I'm sure they're better than mine, but they can't save anybody because, well, they don't have their origin in the mind of God. So Christians are to have their minds transformed and renewed by the written word of God. And what happens is is that when you go to a church, a chapel lecture, a uh, a leadership conference speech and somebody claims to be teaching something about God and never gets around to actually teaching the Bible, then that well, you've wasted your time. Okay? And I mean it's actually kind of worse than that. It's the, the the opportunity has been lost to teach because, I mean, there's only so many hours in a week. There's only so many days in a month, only so many months in a year. And Christians are to be about the business of dedicating themselves to the apostles' teaching, to obsess with Christ, to grow in his word, to, well, daily be in his word. You know, we, you, you, there isn't a day that goes by that you don't eat. There shouldn't be a day that goes by that you're not in the Word. And when you're at church, the job of the pastor is to preach the Word. That's how Christian doctrine is taught. That's how it's reinforced. And in, really, if you think about it, the primary place where false doctrine is to be rebuked is from the pulpit, right? So if the pastor decides that, well, he's too busy, you know, <clears throat> with more important things than to preach the word, there's a problem. When a chapel speaker gets up and theologizes without actually a, offering a simple biblical text, he's not theologizing, he's philosophizing. When a uh, when somebody puts, publishes a Christian book and that becomes the text for a Bible study, Bad things have taken place. Nefarious uh, affairs have, well, nefarious. Anyway, you understand what I'm saying. It's just, this is not, not, not how the Christian faith is taught, confessed, defended, proclaimed, 
and false doctrine rebuked and false. It's, you know, open the Bible and read it. Pastors, open up your Bibles and preach it. You don't have anything more important to do than that. Okay, believe it or not, the stories about your family, you can put those away. Uh, your your clever sermon illustrations, um, if that beca- if you get caught up in your clever sermon illustration, the illustration becomes the thing rather than the word of God. You got things backwards. Okay, if uh, you're you're attending a, a a Christian university and you're required to go to chapel and day in and day out. Uh, the the chapel speakers talk about themselves and they don't actually open up the biblical text and they're not teaching what the scriptures teach, then you know what I would do? Uh, for those of you college students uh, listening to Fighting for the Faith, it's time for you to go have a chat with the uh, the, the the chaplain there at your, uh, whoever's in charge of scheduling speakers. And you need to have, you need to sit down with maybe the dean of, uh, you know, who's in charge of that particular area, basically say, here's the deal, Okay. You guys are requiring me to fill, you know, to swipe in and swipe out, and you're monitoring my attendance here at this uh, college, and you're requiring me to, um, to attend here. Why is it that you're not requiring also that every single speaker who comes here opens up the Word of God and correctly handles it and properly proclaims Christ and Him crucified and doesn't engage in obfuscation, Bible twisting, or philosophizing, right? If you're going to require me to be here, you better make it worth my while because I want to hear Christ and I want to hear sound biblical doctrine. Otherwise, we've got a problem here because if you're going to require me to be here, then you had better, better be serving up the best stuff that there is and stop giving us these speakers who, uh, well, don't even open up the biblical text, talk about themselves, are very clever at giving good, um, you know, anecdotal stories that, that, you know, that are entertaining. We need to hear about Christ. You see what I'm saying? Anyway, yeah, I just wanted to get that all off my chest. So, um, <laughs> I feel better now. You know, I just, you know, this is, uh, it, it's easier for me than it is for you because I, you know, I get to get this off my chest and, you know, and it's, it's like therapy and you, you guys are all, no, I'm, I'm joking. It's not like that. All right. So, uh, let's talk about what we are going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Okay. We're going to start off with a Joel Osteen update. Uh, Joel Osteen has been in the news a lot lately, and so I want to uh, make sure we cover some of that. So uh, we, the segment we're going to be doing today on Joel Osteen is called "What Is Joel Osteen's Secret?" Apparently, there was a secular news agency discussing what Joel Osteen's secret to his success is, and I wanted to uh, share that with you. Um, and then we're going to switch gears and go to uh, Scott Kingsolver's uh, uh, blog and uh, listen to Adam Hamilton of the United Methodist Church um, basically claiming that the biblical model for evangelism doesn't work anymore. I mean, who knew? I mean, I, I, I don't know, you know which department or uh, you know, you know, governmental ministry is in charge of deciding whether or not the biblical model of evangelism has no longer works. But uh, we're going to be listening to Adam Hamilton. After that, we're going to take a break. And when we come back from the break, we're going to spend uh, the balance of the uh, first hour listening to Tony Jones' uh, Better Atonement Chapel speech, part two. We're, we're going to chop this into three parts. So we covered one part last week. We're going to do another part this uh, today. I don't know if we'll get to the other uh, part three until next week, but... Either way, we're going to take a look at the uh, the next part of this, 
and uh, and see what he has to offer as far as a better atonement. Um, yeah, it, the and, and well, of course, I'll be doing doing running commentary, you know, the uh, entire time today, uh, basically pointing out what's missing and what he's up to. It's uh, he's in, he engages in uh, deconstruction. And uh, and is in not doing it well in what I would consider to be a scholarly, um, an honest scholarly way. This is more along the lines of the, the, the schlocky stuff that we get from somebody like a Bart Ehrman or a Elaine Pagels or something like that. Anyway, and then in hour number two, um, we're going to be uh, listening. We're going to be doing a sermon review from uh, the Verve. In Las uh, Las Vegas, Vince Antonucci. The name of the sermon is "Sleeping Ugly." That's the name of the sermon. It's "Sleeping Ugly." So uh, we got lots of ground to cover today. And of course, if you'd like to, uh, you know, make yourself comfortable, that is the best way to enhance your listener experience. Prop up your feet, put your fuzzy bunny slippers on, unless, of course, you're in the muggy buggy hot section of country like I am. I am not wearing my fuzzy bunny slippers today, although they're 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 right under the uh, the desk here. So, you know, sh- should things cool down, I can get to them quickly. So, with that, let's dive into the program proper. Here we go. When I'm feeling lonely, sad as I can be, all by myself, an uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy? Fills me up with glee Those bones in my jaw Don't have a flaw My shiny teeth and me My shiny teeth that twinkle Just like the stars in space My shiny teeth that sparkle Add a beauty to my face Sing along, you've got shiny teeth that glisten Just like a Christmas tree You know they walk a mile Just to see me smile Shiny teeth and me Oh, it's two first two. They're all so perfect, mm-hmm. so white and pearly. Brush, gargle, rinse, a couple breath mints, my shiny teeth and me. My shiny teeth so awesome, just like my favorite song. My shiny teeth that blossom, so they grow to be real strong. My shiny teeth, I love them, and they all love me. Should I talk to you when I've got 32? Shiny teeth and me. Yeah, all right. That's our Joel Osteen update music. All right, so uh, Joel Osteen has been in the news a lot lately. Apparently, he made a you know trip to you know Washington D.C. Did his Night of Hope. Um, I, it, that that's really misnamed. I mean, when Joel Osteen you know rents out a large sports venue. Uh, you know, like Washington Nationals, uh, their stadium there, and invites people in for a, quote, night of hope, you could really actually count on it being a night of heresy, a night of narcissism, a night of, well, anything but sound biblical doctrine. And, you know, and, well, I'll let the folks over at um, CNN kind of explain, because they're they're trying to figure out what is it, what is the secret of Joel Osteen's success? And uh, what they came to conclude is, well... Rather revealing. Yeah, uh, here here we go. Here's um, a CNN news team uh, discussing the secret of Joel Osteen. CNN's belief blog covers faith aspects of the day's biggest stories, and this week one story that caught our eye was an interview with evangelist Joel Osteen. He's the senior pastor at Lakewood Church, often called the biggest church in America. CNN.com religion editor Dan Gilgoff joins me now from Washington. Hi, Dan. 
Hi, Allison. So Osteen is in Washington for a big event at National Stadium, and you got a chance to sit down with him for a conversation earlier this week. And this, of course, was between him taking batting practice with the National Washington Nationals and delivering opening a prayer in Congress. You know, at a time when most churches in this country are shrinking, Osteen's Lakewood Church in Houston boasts, what, 40,000 weekly members? You know, what is his secret? <laughs> The answer is heresy. It's called scratching itchy ears. Oh, man. That's right. It's funny. You know, most churches are shrinking right now. But if you ask Osteen, he thinks that Christianity has never been in better shape because his his um, uh, church is growing and all of the churches of his mega pastor friends are growing, too. I think one of his secrets is a message that's really all about self-empowerment and self-help. And he, uh, he, he doesn't talk a lot about sin. It's about as far as away from fire and brimstone as you could get. Is <laughs> I, the, the best part is, is that this guy is talking about these, you know, these innovations that Joel Osteen has come up with. I mean, listen, you know, it's it's about self empowerment, self help. It's as far away as you know from the topic of sin as humanly possible, and the, the, that's the secret of his success. These are all supposedly good things, and the proof. Well, I mean, he's got forty thousand people showing up every weekend over there at Lakewood. And uh, that see that proves it that this is all this is all a good thing. No, it's not. This is not fidelity to the biblical text. Joel Osteen doesn't rightly handle God's word. He doesn't correctly exegete the biblical texts. And the fact that this guy so succinctly, so quickly, so accurately summarized Joel Osteen's message as self empowerment, self improvement, um, self help. I don't need a crucified and risen Lord for that. It's clear that uh, what's going on here, um, well, these folks have put their finger on it. Uh, what what exactly in uh, Joel Osteen's message there is Christian? And I think on the one hand, this is his attraction. You know, tens of thousands of people are headed to his church each week. On the other hand, he's become something of a controversial figure. So there are other Christians who criticize him for preaching what they call a Christianity light. No, it's not Christianity at all. It's a different religion. I, to call it Christianity light is an insult to Christianity. It's, this isn't Christianity. Hmm, interesting. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, and this is someone, no doubt, who's also had some political influence, although reluctantly. And I want to show you what he, what he had to say to our Wolf Blitzer this week about Mitt Romney's faith. Listen to this. I just think it's different callings that you feel called to. For instance, Billy Graham is a mentor of mine. And see, this, you know how Joel Osteen justifies his false doctrine? Well, there's different callings. People have, you know, callings to do this or callings to do that. You know, I, I'm just not called to, you know, preach sound doctrine. It's ridiculous. Is he a pastor or not? If he's a pastor, then he's under orders to fulfill the duties of the office and those are laid out in First, Second Timothy, and Titus, and other places to preach the word, preach which that which is in accord with sound doctrine. Study and show yourself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment. Rightly cutting, dividing the word of truth. But see, Joel Osteen, you know, he gets off the hook because you know it's just not my calling. I, I, uh, some guys are called to do this. Some guy, I'm just called to be a 
Hallmark greeting card. Been a friend to me and all. And when he was here, he was an evangelist going out from city to city preaching repentance and you need to come to know Christ. Well, the people I'm preaching to at, at, at the church each week, you know, probably 95% of them know the Lord. So I can't just keep going, okay, guys, you got to get the cross. Jesus died for us. And he, I, we do do that. I do it a lot of times at the end of the message, but a lot. Yeah, without any context whatsoever. A lot of my message is. Okay, now, I know the Lord. I believe in the cross. I believe he, re he was raised from the dead. I believe in the blood of Christ and all Do you think that Joel Osteen's the first guy to, you know, you know, he's like he's discovered, you know, fire or something. I mean, seriously, this is the equivalent of Joel Osteen saying, you know, I was having a hard time figuring out how to cook my food, you know, because, you know, I found that when, you know, I ate raw meat, you know, it just didn't sit well with me. And then I, did, you know, then lightning struck and hit a tree outside. And wouldn't you know, there was this thing that was hot and it was like glowing red. And and so I've, I've, I've tapped into this. It's called fire. And, and so I've learned that if I cook my food over it, that, you know, it, that I can get the food up to a particular temperature and then I don't have the digestive problems and stuff like that. That so listen to us to his, what he's saying here. You know, the the people who go to my church, well, they're all Christians anyway, and so you know, I don't want to have to keep preaching Christ. You know, the weird part in all of this is that the Apostle Paul um, would uh, seem to uh, well think differently uh, than Joel Osteen. And what I mean by that, if you have your Bible, flip on over to First uh, Corinthians. Um, I'll pick up at the end of uh, chapter one, and uh, and then tack on to that, um, uh, you know, part of chapter two. But uh, the apostle Paul, I mean, you know, keep in mind this was a letter written to, well, Christians, at the church in Corinth, you know, and so I mean, Paul's pretty much assuming that hey, you know, everybody there is already a Christian, um. And so he says, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, the, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. So where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For, uh, for since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. And this would be like worldly wisdom, you know, tips for making life better. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of nor noble birth. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Huh. 
You know, and see, the other thing is, is that it, it, Joel, you know, it's not like, you know, hey, um, you know, there's 66 different books in the Bible. I mean, there's a lot of stuff there. And, you know, it, the job of the pastor is to preach the word. So, I mean, if you're looking for material, you might want to consider working your way whole, through the whole book, you know. But anyway, listen to his justification. But now how do I live my Christian life? Okay, so clearly it wasn't with Wolf Blitzer, but you get the point here. This was about his calling. How important is this, Dan? Yeah, well, he's a, an important uh, political figure. This this week he said uh, to us that he thought that Mitt Romney was a brother in Christ. And Mitt Yeah, he did. Romney, of course, is a Mormon. Joe Osteen, one of the most influential evangelicals in the country. I think that really is a big deal. One of the top goals of Romney's advisors that work on religious outreach is to get evangelicals to come out this time around and say, it's okay to vote for a Mormon. That didn't really happen when Romney ran for president in 2008. Now, Osteen didn't endorse him far from it by coming out though and saying he is a christian romney is a christian he's one of us that goes a long way in lending him legitimacy and making it quote okay for evangelicals to vote for him i think yeah man one heretic declaring another heretic to be the true christian yeah wow i think it is a big deal okay so and this church is no doubt massive it preaches its own version of christianity to it yeah, it's right it's right she said it it preaches its own version not the historic Christian uh, faith, but its own version. It's not Christianity. As soon as it becomes your own version, it's not Christianity anymore. We're to preach this faith once for all delivered to the saints, not our own versions of it. Degree, uh, you asked him a little bit about this. You know, what was his response? Yeah, you know, he doesn't wade into politics. I think that's a big key to his appeal. I think you might see more preachers following his lead in this election. I think that a lot of Americans are tired of their religious leaders talking about polarizing politics, talking about hot-button issues. And so even though Osteen is controversial, I think you might see more preachers preaching a, a message like his, very soft, very appealing, very light on politics, even in an election year like this one. Okay, CNN.com's religion editor, Dan Gilgoff, thanks for being with us. Yeah, there you go. So the secret of Joel Osteen's success? Well, he's got his own version of Christianity. It's not Christianity. Um, he's really just he the see the culture's tired of of people taking a hard line on truth and saying this is true and that's not and and Joel Osteen well he's the perfect postmodern squishy person who uh, is you know hard to pin down because well he's got his own version of Christianity. Moving along. From the uh, Revangelical Burning Out Bright blog, you can find this at revangelical.net. The uh, headline reads, My belated exit interview with the UMC, uh, Scott Kingsolver, who was formerly of the United Methodist Church. There uh, posts his belated exit interview with the uh, United Methodist Church. I'm not going to read his exit interview, but there you can find this video. And uh, the video that he posted is uh, is from the General Conference of the United Methodist Church, and a guy by the name of Adam Adam Hamilton speaking to young clergy in the United Methodist Church. By the way, there were some pretty crazy shenanigans going on there, including a flash mob at uh, it basically um, calling for 
recognition of gay couples and gay marriage and, and the homosexual agenda and stuff like that. So uh, the, the folks over at the United Methodist Church have got a fight on their hands. But anyway, uh, with guys like Adam Hamilton, it makes me wonder, where do these guys get this kind of stuff? But uh, let, here, I'll let him explain. Here's Adam Hamilton speaking to young clergy members of the United Methodist Church, basically making the claim that the biblical model for evangel, evangel, evangelism, evangelism, got Get that out right. Yeah, the, the biblical model for evangelism doesn't work. Yeah, here, here's uh, Adam Hamilton to explain. So the question was, the millennial generation isn't really interested in walking into churches. Can you all hear me when I'm speaking? Okay. Isn't really interested in walking into churches. Uh, they're look, really looking at missional models. They're not looking at attractional models. I totally agree with that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention, a, I'm going to sort of separate a couple of things here. The call to action proposals we presented last night are not, and I tried to say this a couple of times, the silver bullet for reaching a new generation. They are not the silver bullet that's going to fix the church. What we're talking about here, or what I was trying to propose here, not my proposals, but speaking for them, are certain key things that we can do at General Conference. Uh, ultimately, one of the things that I teach across the country, some of you heard me teach this at your annual conference, is the old model in the 1980s was you start with evangelism, you reach out to people, you invite them to church, you disciple them, you help them grow in their faith, and then you send them out in a mission in the world. Uh, by the way, yeah, uh, sorry, Adam, I'm, you know, I'm not sure where you got your education from, but that model that you described there, that wasn't uh, the model created in the 1980s. Yeah, that was the model... <laughs> That, that Jesus actually taught his disciples to engage in. You're familiar with the Jesus sending out of the, you know, the, the 70, uh, you know, Jesus having them go out two by two to towns. And you'll notice that then what happens is after Jesus's death, resurrection and ascension, uh, that there, there's missionaries sent out. They proclaim the gospel, repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus name. And God, the Holy Spirit, takes people who are dead in trespasses and sins and raises them from the dead. And then what happens is, is that you bring them to church and you disciple them and you teach them and you, you, you have them mature in the faith in their understanding of scripture and sanctification. And then they go out and be their missionaries and they, then the cycle starts all over again. So you said that that was the model from the 1980s. It's, no, no, no. You, you kind of shot way too close to the, to the current day. That's the model what, that Jesus taught his apostles and the disciples to use. And so it goes all the way back. So it's like 2,000-something years old. You get, you get what I'm saying? That's, that doesn't work anymore. Really? It doesn't work anymore. Was there a committee formed? I, I'm curious, you know, so did the Missiological Laboratories Committee and the Missiological Missions Innovations Department, did they determine that the model that Jesus gave, the one that's in Scripture, the one that the apostles use, that it doesn't work? And Where's the statistics? Um, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to see, you know, the double blind study that was done. I, what are you talking about? It doesn't work anymore. I'm going to back this up a little bit because I mean, this, you got to hear this in context. Across the country, some of you heard me teach this at your annual conference is the old model in the 1980s was you start with evangelism. You reach out to people, you invite them to church, you disciple them, you help them grow in their faith, and then you send them out in a mission in the world. That's, that doesn't work anymore. 
And, the, and if you're looking for a model, at least some metaphor that helps, you know that old baseball diamond that Rick Warren developed? Oh, brother. I don't know if you developed it, but it's, it's been turned on its head. And we see that at Church of the Resurrection. You see that in your church. We invite people to be a part of God's mission. Somewhere along the way, they rub shoulders with people. So the new model is this. We invite you know non-believers. Hey, come be a part of God's mission in the world. That should sound like Blackaby to you. Uh, see, see, God's doing something over here. Come join him. So come be a part of God's mission. Then they rub shoulders with the uh, Christians. Who are followers of Christ. Somewhere along the way, we invite them to come to a worship service, a Bible study, something else. They begin to find their life transformed. They find out Christians don't bite. So they, they bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit before they're even regenerate. How is that possible? And they find that they need what the church has to offer and what Christ offers. And then we send them out to even more bold and courageous mission for Christ in the future. So that's clearly the, that's the future. No, it's not. That's like, the, if that's the future, then what we're talking about is the suicide of Christianity. And you're complicit in it. Because scripture says that everybody's born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God. So it's not biblical Christian evangelism, nor are people brought to repentance of their sins and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins through this model because they're not evangelized. They come join us on the mission of the, you know, that we're on. We're, we found where God's working and we joined him and come join us and we can rub shoulders and, and then you can have life transformation and then you find out you need what we got. This is all backwards. You can't bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life without first being born again. It's impossible. I mean, <laughs> yo, man, this is wrong-headed and convoluted. That's the present. Um, what we were addressing last night was not what is it going to take to make every individual church grow. What I said was what it's going to take to turn things around in local churches is at the local church level and at the annual conference level, not what we can mandate from general conference. So, uh, so part of my response would be, yes, absolutely, I totally agree with that. It's just that that was beyond the scope of what we were trying to address. Yeah, okay, now we're s switching into um, political babble. Anyway, so there you go. Uh, apparently, you know, some, some missiological innovations department has decided that the uh, biblical model for evangelism, where you call pagans to repentance of their sins and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, so that they can be born again, regenerated, uh, raised from the dead, and that then they come to church and are discipled and bear fruit in keeping with repentance, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, that's all backwards. They, no, no, come join us. on. You know, we're, we're, out, we're out here. Work, we found where God's working. We joined him in his mission. Come join us, you pagans. Rub shoulders with us. Then you can have life transformation. In other words, bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit without even being regenerate, and then we'll tell you what it is that you need because you, you'll, need, you'll want what we have. This is an evangelism. This is the formula for the literally the implosion and suicide of Christianity. Wrong-headed, too. I mean, absolutely arrogant. Really, you know better than Jesus how to grow his church. I had no idea. So there you go. Uh, you folks over at the uh, United Methodist Church who still actually hold the faith, uh, you might want to have a talk with this Adam Hamilton guy because that's not evangelism. That's something completely different. Okay, we are up on our uh, first break. If you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pirate Christian. Got lost in my own thoughts there. We'll be right back.
you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Doesn't it bother you how some Christians are quick to argue about theology? Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Wait a minute. Did you catch the double standard in that statement? What double standard? You just said that Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Yeah, so what? Do you believe that statement is accurate? Of course I do. So if you think that statement is accurate, would it be safe to say that you think that statement is correct? Of course I think it's correct. That goes without saying. If I think the statement is accurate I obviously think it's correct. I wouldn't have made the statement if I didn't think it was accurate or correct. Did you notice that your statement was making a theological point? Well, yes, I suppose it was. So let me see if I've correctly understood the statement you made. Okay. You said it bothers you how some Christians are quick to argue theology. Yes. That's what I said. It sounds like you're saying that it bothers you that some Christians argue theology in order to prove that something that you believe or have been taught is not correct? Well, um, yes, I guess that's what I was saying. But then you made a theological argument to try to prove that Christians shouldn't argue theology. Well, um, yes. So, on the one hand you say that it bothers you that Christians argue theology in order to prove your theology wrong but then on the other hand... You turned right around and employed a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong. That's cheating. You can't use a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong. That's like using logic to prove that logical argumentation is wrong or using a mathematical equation to prove that using math is wrong. I knew it. Knew what? You're one of those people. What do you mean by those people? You're one of those people who loves theology more than people. What on earth are you talking about? You're a close-minded blogger who lives in her mother's basement and spends every day in her pajamas on a beanbag typing away on a laptop while eating cheetahs and drinking Mountain Dew. spend some serious time staring at a digital screen, probably around eight hours a day. There's work, video games, surfing the web, and every other function of life on all our devices. Hey, we live in an age where everything is digital. It's just par for the course, right? But have you ever thought about the impact all that has on your eyes? All that screen time is going to affect your vision. Maybe now, maybe later, but it's gonna happen. We're talking everything from eye fatigue and headaches to eyes that are so dry and irritated, they could make even the techiest dude alive want to go analog. It's pretty hard to do the stuff you love if your eyes are feeling exhausted or burnt out. But it's not like less time in front of a screen is an option these days. So what do you do? 
It's like you need some crazy awesome invention that can help your eyes stay fresh and protect them so that you can get the most out of your digital consumption. Introducing Gunner Optics. Gunners are these super sweet computer glasses that make it easier and more comfortable to enjoy all your digital activities. There's seriously some NASA grade stuff going on here, but basically they have this uber smart lens technology that improves your visual experience, protects your vision, and helps prevent wear and tear on your eyes. Gunner's yellow lenses filter out harsh artificial light, which helps you see better, and they relax your eyes and stop them from straining constantly. Plus, they help combat all those other nasty side effects of staring at screens all day, like eye fatigue and dryness. Your eyes do a lot for you. Return the favor with Gunner's. For more information about Gunner's and to see a video with me wearing my pair of Gunner's, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunner's. That's G-U-N-N-A-R-S. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunner's. And thank you for your support. Uh, warning, anybody who says that Jesus' model for evangelism doesn't work anymore seems to think that they know better than Jesus how to grow the church. Just saying. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. If you don't already partner with us financially, uh, would you please do so? You can do that by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button there on our website, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. These are the sounds of the um, postmodern emergent Philharmonic Orchestra. And their spiritualized rendition of also Sprach Zarathustra. An homage to the writings of Friedrich Nietzsche. This version of the um, song you'll notice has been set free from the limiting, confining definitions of modernist notes. Set free to just let the spirit move like wind in a fire, like a tornado, a hurricane. This just unleashes the forces of uh, post-modernity out into the musical world. Uh, this is just a tour de force. Yeah, there we go. Okay, so um, we this is part two of uh, of a three part series that we're going to be playing. Uh, we last week began to unpack and let um, Tony Jones, uh, the theologian in residence there at um, 
uh, Solomon's Porch and also a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. Um, and, you know, he's got his uh, Ph.D. in theology from Princeton. Um, and I'm just thinking that uh, he's of a, a different theological stripe than maybe, a, you know, somebody who's other a famous uh, scholar from uh, Princeton, like uh, Benjamin Warfield, who I have a great amount of respect for, even though I'm a Lutheran, he's a Calvinist. But um, so I'm going to back up the audio just a smidge. We're going to pick up where we left off. And he's this is a sermon that he gave, a chapel speech that he gave at Baylor University, um, talking about his new self-published ebook, um, A Better Atonement. And so he's talking about atonement theories. He's he's been talking about the the, the ransom captive. The theory of the atonement, and uh, and so we're going to pick up from there. And uh, here we go. Passes his kingship over humanity with death. Right, you've heard this: the wages of sin is death. That's the penalty, and that's the main part of Satan's reign. But when Christ dies, the Son of God, death is defeated, and Satan is defeated in Christ's death. Christ is the victor, and we find new life. Christ. Now, some of this, like the ransom captive theory, may sound very familiar to you. Because that's the version of the atonement that is enshrined in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I do want to point something out here. Um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is not a biblical book. You won't find it in the Bible. Although it's it's great Christian allegory, it's not found in the Bible. Edmund, he strays from his brother and sisters, and he meets up with the White Witch, and he eats not an apple, but Turkish delight. That's what in C.S. Lewis's Narnia books stands in for the fruit in the Garden of Eden. He eats the Turkish delight, and he becomes an ally in that action. He becomes an ally with the White Witch. And the White Witch then says to, you know, the gathered people, including to Edmund's siblings, there is a deep magic from ancient times that says, if you betray your siblings, you must die. And so Edmund will die, and everybody's crying, and they're all very, very sad. And then in the movie, you see Aslan go over, and he, like, whispers to the White Witch. And then later that night, Aslan goes to the stone table, and he dies on Edmund's behalf because Aslan has struck a deal with the White Witch. He negotiated with her. He said, look, if you take me, the mighty and powerful Aslan, will you let Edmund go? Not to quibble here with a children's uh, story, but um, don't you see some elements of substitution going on there as well? The white witch says, yes, that's even better. I'd rather kill you than Edmund. So she lets Edmund go. Aslan dies on the stone table, but then... The stone table breaks in half, and Aslan comes back to life, and he played a trick on the White Witch. He never told her he was going to be resurrected. And she's like, ah, got me again, Aslan. Trick me again. Right? 
by the way, uh, he's engaging in deconstruction. And the way he's doing it, he's having, well, C.S. Lewis's uh, working of the atonement as a stand-in. He's not actually doing anything with a biblical text here. What he's doing is taking um, somebody's metaphor for the atonement in an allegory, and he's going to deconstruct that. And by doing that, he is somehow overthrowing these concepts of the atonement. But he's not actually theologizing the way Christians should, quote, theologize. And what I mean by that is, is that don't you think if we're going to talk about the atonement, we had better have a Bible cracked open? It, it might be beneficial and useful to be laboring over some texts that address this topic, don't you think? And thus we have sequels. Let's think about the inherent problem with this understanding of the atonement. Do you really think that God or Aslan... Do you really think... Okay. Deconstructing questions, similar to the question that the serpent asked in the garden of Adam and Eve, or actually Eve... Did God really say? So here we go. He's set up a straw man. Standing in for a biblical doctrine is uh, C.S. Lewis's allegorization of the atonement. Um, and um, so now he's going to deconstruct this idea of the atonement and basically ask the deconstructing question, do you really think? I mean, the, the idea is you're smarter than this, aren't you? You can do better than that. I mean, this is just silly, 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 silly. So we're going to overthrow an entire concept or aspect of the doctrine of the atonement based upon a straw man argument. Um, okay. Has to abide by some deep magic from ancient time? Why is God, the creator of the cosmos, bound by some law or some magic, so much so that God has to bargain with Satan. Like, uh, okay, where in the Bible does it say that God bargains with Satan? I, I'm not familiar with that text. Maybe you can point it out to me. Um, Weird, huh? It, where's the part in the Bible that says that God is bound to magic? I don't find that either. However, I do find texts that talk about God not contradicting his nature and his character. Is that what you're talking about? How impotent of a God is it who has to negotiate with the devil? Hey, look, I really want these people back. Like, what do I got to do here, Satan? And Satan's like, well, I don't know. You give me your, you know, your innocent divine son. And Again, this negotiation is nowhere recorded in the Bible. Weird, huh? So, so he's deconstructing, you know, oh, you know, do you really think that this makes any sense? Well, not, <laughs> uh, at the, how do I make sense of what you're saying, Tony? You haven't even cracked open a biblical passage yet. We're not discussing anything actually revealed in God's word. And God's like, well, that really sucks for me, but okay, here's my son. By the way, he's going to be resurrected on the third day, but I'm not telling you that part. Like, it's kind of 
it kind of gives us a very weak understanding of God. And it's why, after about a thousand years, this understanding of the atonement fell out of favor. People were like, I don't think it makes sense that God would have to bargain with the devil. Maybe you can cite some sources here. I mean, it's it's not like, well, yeah, let me put, just put bluntly. Um, based upon your presentation thus far, I'm not trusting your scholarship. Um, can you point out who was saying this in history? When did the this discussion take place? Who who were the people discussing it? So for the last thousand years, the second thousand years of Christian history, another understanding of the atonement has been the more popular one. Mm, yeah, it just come theory just pops out of the sky, out of thin air. It's called substitution substitutionary understanding of the atonement. And it's what you and I grew up with. In this version of the atonement, the problem isn't the devil. The problem is human sin. That's the problem that we need to be rescued from. We don't need God. Yeah, wait, 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 wait. Can I point something out here? Human sin is an abstraction. Okay. <laughs> problem is this abstract concept of human sin. No, 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 no. The problem is, is that every human being by nature is born dead and trespasses in sin as a result of the outright disobedience of our first parents. Um, we're born under a curse. We're born dead and trespasses in sin. This is not, it's not this abstract concept of sin it's this very real thing that because of the rebellion of our first parents who transgressed God's command, um, that we all are born um, with a sinful nature. This is what scripture reveals, by the way. To bargain with Satan, now we need God to figure out how God can overcome our sinfulness. This is what you and I grew up understanding. And we maybe even saw an illustration like this one. There's a chasm between us and God. This looks like it's taken from like the four spiritual laws. You know, there's like, there's a guy sitting on one side and there's the, the big chasm. The chasm is sin. God is holy. And God can't get across the chasm. Really, God can't get across. Wow, I had no idea that believing in substitution is that somehow God's sitting there going, how, how, how do I fix it? I can't get across that chasm. To us, because our sin separates us from God, and we can't get across the chasm to God, because the chasm is too great. Now notice again, he's deconstructing a metaphor. He's deconstructing a, you know, a, a, a kind of, you know, for lack of a better way, an illustration that tries to somehow explain what the Bible's teaching. He's not actually taking on any biblical text. I mean, this would be the equivalent of me basically saying, you know what? The doctrine of the Trinity cannot possibly be true. You know, be the reason why is because, you know, hundreds of years ago, there was this guy named St. Patrick, and he, you know, he was in Ireland. And he grabbed a shamrock and and said that, you know, the shamrock has three leaves on it. And so the shamrock is like the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, that's silly because we know that God isn't green. 
And, you know, to compare him to a shamrock, well, that's ridiculous. God doesn't have a stem. Uh, and so the idea is, is that, okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to beat up on the metaphor that's designed to try to help us grasp a concept. And, um, and so, therefore, by debunking the metaphor that somehow we've proven the doctrine of the Trinity wrong. Well, that's what he's doing here. It's the same thing. He hasn't opened the Bible. He's actually engaging in very lazy scholarship, if you can even call it that. I mean, serious. Okay, well, I'm sure you've you've done a fantastic job here, Tony, of beating up on C.S. Lewis's allegory of the atonement. And yeah, you, you're doing a fine job of really beating the tar out of that illustration, you know, that there's a chasm. But see, here's the deal. The Bible... Um, doesn't say this. Don't you think if we're going to talk about the atonement, we might actually want to interact with the biblical texts? You know, I'm just saying here, you know. Sin keeps us apart. And how do we ever overcome that? Well, part of this substitutionary understanding of the atonement is that God is so holy and so just that he could not possibly allow sinful you or sinful me to have eternal life with him. Mm, don't you think there might be some passages that mention something like that? That would just be unjust. Right, you know, an abstract concept of justice. That would betray some universal sense of justice. No, it actually would betray the very character of God. Justice isn't an abstraction. It's actually one of the attributes of God's being in essence. That a perfect holy God would allow an imperfect unholy you to spend eternity with him. God's justice demands that our sin must be paid for. Not unlike a legal system demands that a guilty party pay a punishment before they are set free. So you can see that over the last thousand years as kind of the Western legal systems... See, yeah, that's see the, the whole idea of substitutionary atonement. It doesn't come out of the Bible. No, no, no. The, this was developed along with the jurisprudence. Were developing as we kind of got rid of kings and monarchies and fiefdoms and all the stuff you learned. I mean, you know, Tony, I got to say this. You know, you used to be a lot better at this whole deconstruction thing. Yeah, you've got it sloppy, you know. Learn about in medieval history class and we develop into what we have, the modern world, a world full of laws and judges and lawyers and police, that this much more legal understanding of the atonement starts to make a lot of sense to a lot of people. Yeah, See, with the development of laws and judges, that's why this makes sense. Well, that's right. There's justice. There must be justice. And if It has nothing to do with anything revealed in the Bible. No. We're sinful and God is perfect, then God must demand some kind of punishment or penalty. Yeah, it's not that the Bible teaches this. No, 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 no. The, People just hijack this from the culture of, of the law legal code system. But who could pay this penalty? Well, not one of us, because none of us 
is, in, is perfect. Each of us is imperfect. Only one person could pay this penalty. The Son of God, who is perfect, who is sinless. And so the Son of God comes down to earth and stands between us and God. Some of these understanding, uh, understandings of the atonement even emphasize God's wrath. God is so mad at you because... Yeah, because the Bible doesn't say anything about the wrath of God at all, ever. ...of your sin. But Jesus stands between us. So the angry God looks and doesn't see me in my sin. The angry God looks and sees his perfect son. And he punishes that son on behalf of my sin and your sin. Well, maybe you can see some of the problems in this version of the atonement too. Um, again, which Bible passages are you discussing here, Tony? When I was young, my youth pastor told me... Uh-oh, here we go again. So now he's going to, you know, again, he's not addressing anything actually written in the biblical text. No, 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 no. So now we're going to go with another metaphor. We're going to beat up on that metaphor too, yeah. This kind of metaphor for this. And maybe, maybe you heard something like this too. It's like this. It's like a judge condemns a convicted murderer to death. And then the judge stands up, takes off his robe, and goes to the electric chair on behalf of that convicted murderer. Now, I've heard that metaphor myself, and I don't think it's actually very accurate. It breaks down on, a, on quite a few levels. But that doesn't overthrow the biblical teaching regarding this. If the, you know, all metaphors come up, end up coming up short in some degree or another. That... I was told as a youth, that is what Jesus did for you. To which I say, now, there's not a single legal system in the world that would say that that's justice. Okay, so the standard is human legal systems. Hmm. Okay. Like, let's say in a real courtroom, a judge did that. A judge was like, hey, I'm going to now, this guy who just committed murder and we condemned him to death, I'm going to actually go to the electric chair on his behalf. I'm going to take the punishment for him. Everybody in the courtroom would be like... So he's found the weakness in the metaphor, and so that proves that this is not what was going on. Uh, no, 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 you don't get to do that. That's not justice. That's not how justice works. Justice isn't an innocent victim taking the penalty for a guilty perpetrator that's not justice ah okay and w what's your standard for this what people what biblical patches passages are you using to well address this these these thorny issues i mean you're doing a fine job of deconstructing metaphors but you haven't brought up any biblical passages and it just so happens that prior to today's edition of fighting for the faith i spent some time well, collecting up the biblical passages that address this. And I just want to do a little bit of a Bible study, if you'd like. And, you know, let's take a look at what the what God has revealed regarding Jesus' death on the cross in his written word to see if any of this stuff that Tony Jones is saying makes any sense. Because all he's doing is deconstructing metaphors, but he's not actually engaging in biblical 
teaching. In fact, he's not doing Christian theology. This is postmodern deconstructive philosophy, not Christian theology. So let's do some Christian theology, and the way we do that is by opening up the biblical text. Now, a lot of folks don't understand that the concept of substitution has its origin not in medieval concepts of jurisprudence, but instead goes all the way back to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of give you the, the touch point, and we'll work backwards here. Uh, Paul, talking about church discipline, points to this out. He says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. There is a theme that runs through the New Testament teaching regarding what Christ has done on the cross, that he is our Passover lamb. This is, I think, the reason why the Apostle John makes a point of saying that none of the bones of Jesus Christ were broken when he was crucified. That's an important piece of it. But in order to understand what's going on as as it pertains to substitution, we've got to go back to the book of Exodus. So if you have your Bible, flip back to Exodus chapter 11. I'm going to be reading a lot of scripture here to kind of flesh this out. And you'll notice I'm doing the thing that, well, Tony Jones isn't doing. And that is opening up the biblical text. If we're going to do Christian theology, that means we need to be in the text, right? Here's what's going on, okay? There's a showdown, okay? A showdown between the one true God, Yahweh, who's referred to in this passage as the Lord. And you'll notice it's all caps. When you're in the Old Testament and you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, when it says Lord, okay, the Hebrew word behind that is, is Yahweh. It's known as the Tetragrammaton. It's the formal name for God. And uh, there's a lot of different reasons why folks just don't translate Yahweh and it gets turned into Lord. I'm not going to get into that here. But the point is, is that when you hear the Lord said this, you should be, it'd be nice in your mind for you to go Yahweh, because here's what's going on, is that the one true God is sending two emissaries, Moses and his brother Aaron to go and to tell the tell Pharaoh, who is himself a quote God king, to let my people go. They are in slavery. Now, just so you know, I'm not trying to allegorize this at all. That's a type and shadow of what it is that all of us um, are experiencing in some degree or another, right? Okay, we're born dead in trespasses and sins, in slavery to sin, death, and the devil. Though that's the picture, this is a picture of it there being played out in the physical, real history of Israel, okay? So two emissaries from the one true God go to the false God who's enslaving the people of God and declares to them, let my people go. Pharaoh's response is, I don't know this Yahweh. Why should I obey him? Well, of course, why should he? Because in Pharaoh's mind, he's a God king, right? He himself is divine. He doesn't take orders from the so-called God of the people he's been, in, you know, that have been enslaved for four hundred years. That's ridiculous, right? And so a showdown ensues. A showdown ensues between the one true God and this false God, Pharaoh. You have to see it that way because you you, you miss kind of the whole point. And it, there's ten plagues that God unleashes through Moses on the people of Egypt. Um, because Pharaoh will not let God's people go. 
Okay, now the last one is the key one, though. This is the uh, the the killing of the firstborn. And I want you to see what's going on here because you can't understand the concept of substitution without understanding this because Jesus in Scripture in the New Testament is our Passover lamb. Exodus chapter 11, I'll start at verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, Yet one plague more, and I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor, every woman of uh, her neighbor for silver, for gold, jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says Yahweh, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all of these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all of the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger, and then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Okay? So, let me read the last verse here in chapter 11. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Okay, now, in the previous plagues, and when you read this in its fuller context, in the previous plagues, God made distinctions between uh, the people of Israel and Egypt. For instance, when he sent darkness on the land, a darkness that you could feel and they, for three days, Egypt was was in utter darkness. Um, where the Israelites lived in the land of Goshen, there was light. Okay, God made those distinctions. Now, this last plague, God will make a distinction if, and what I mean by that by that is this is that in order for the children of Israel not to have their firstborn also killed, there has to be a substitute. Okay, God's going to set up a substitute where a lamb, a unblemished lamb, can be will be killed, and its blood put on the doorpost. So the the lamb becomes the substitute. If without that the its blood and that substitute the children of Israel would lose their firstborn too. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood 
put it on the two doorposts of the lintel of the house in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood that shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." So the idea of substitution doesn't have its origin in medieval jurisprudence. Instead, the idea of substitution is here. In order for the children of Israel to not suffer the same fate and to be judged the way the Egyptians were, a substitute had to step in, and that substitute was a year-old lamb without blemish. So when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that Jesus is our Passover lamb, and there's allusions to Jesus being our Passover lamb, the lamb without blemish, without wrinkle, without spot, without sin, right? That's what's going on here. The lamb is the substitute, and his blood protects them, right? So that's kind of the picture here. That's where substitution ultimately has its origin, not in human institutions or philosophy, but instead in the very word of God that's revealed in the Old Testament. Now there's more. There are passages that we can turn to where this doctrine of, well, our, our understanding, it is revealed to us what was going on on the cross, what Jesus was doing. Okay? For instance, we could look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now I'm going to read verses 20 and 21. Now, even though I'm reading just two sentences, two verses, I'm addressing the very specific topic that is addressed in those passages. And when you put it back in its full context, you will see, and I, in fact, I challenge you to do this, go back and reread this in context. When you put it back in its full context, you will discover that what I'm saying is in agreement with when you read it in its full context. Here's what it says. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 through 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So here's this idea of reconciliation. There's, there's obviously some kind of a breach in our relationship with God, and we're called to basically go and tell people to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, that's God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Notice it says, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's very peculiar language. What does it mean that God made the sinless one to be sin? Well, let's take a look at some other passages using the hermeneutical principle known as Scripture interprets Scripture. This is the idea that, you know, if you're not clear in a particular passage, let's go to some other passages that address the same topic, not a different topic, 
but the same topic to see if they can shed more light. And so we're going to do that. Flip back to Isaiah chapter 53. I'm going to read verses 3 through 11. Here's what it says. Talking about the suffering servant. This is Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Interesting language. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Now that word chastisement, by the way, the Hebrew could just as easily be translated as punishment. So when you hear the, 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 this idea of substitution being referred to as vicarious, penal, substitutionary, atonement, penal, being punishment, okay, the Hebrew there completely is in agreement. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Notice the passage says, God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, this language has other cross-references, and I would recommend you might want to spend some time looking at them, particularly regarding the Day of Atonement, which is discussed in Leviticus chapter 16, where the chief priests are to lay, put their hands over and lay on the uh, the scapegoat the sins of the people of Israel, okay? This language is exactly the same kind of language and metaphor and concept that's coming out of what's revealed in, in Leviticus 16. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, living stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord, it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. His soul made an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Notice the substitution goes both ways. His servants are accounted or credited as righteous, and he bears their iniquities, even though he's sinless. This is Isaiah chapter 53. Funny that um, Tony Jones didn't want to take this passage on. Instead, he wanted to do the easy thing and just debunk a, a metaphor. Weird, huh? But there's more. Romans chapter 4, I'll read verses 20 through 25 and see if you can kind of get what was revealed here in the text. Isaiah 53 makes it very clear. Jesus is our substitute. He is the one being punished and chastised for our sins. Our sins are laid on him. He's bearing the iniquity of us all, right? 
Okay. Romans 4, 20 through 25. No one belief made him waver. This is talking about Abraham. No one belief made Abram waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was credited to him or accounted to him as righteousness. Notice that the language here, accounted as righteous is and credited as righteous, counted as righteous, same kind of language coming straight out of Isaiah 53. This has to do with the imputation of Christ's righteousness on Abram. So his faith was accredited or accounted as righteous, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake only, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised uh, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our transgressions or our trespasses and raised for our justification. So Romans 4, 20, 25 is a great cross-reference to Isaiah 53, okay? There you've got the credited as righteousness language straight out of Isaiah 53, 11, and you have the idea of our sins being laid on Jesus. So it's clear that Romans 4, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has Jesus in mind as the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, and his servants are accounted as righteous. So... Peter also picks up on this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20, uh, 22 through 25, he writes, He, that's Jesus, committed no sin. Neither was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Notice, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That would be God the Father. Notice the justice here is being brought up. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He bore them. He carried them. They were laid on him, right? This is what the Apostle Peter says. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Again, another reference here. Peter is clearly got uh, Isaiah 53 in mind here, and Jesus is the fulfillment of it. Um, for we were like sheep... Uh, by his wounds you've been healed, for we were like sheep that uh, straying sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. Okay. Now the next part is taken from Hebrews chapter nine, verses thirteen through twenty-eight. It's a little bit complicated, but this is the understanding. This is kind of the the, the explanation that's given by the holy writer, the the inspired writer of the book of Hebrews. Okay. So uh, Hebrews chapter nine, thirteen through twenty-eight. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared to Moses, to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all of the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. 
And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is what Scripture says. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is what God's holy and just character demands. This isn't about magic. This isn't about medieval jurisprudence. This is about God. He has declared that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And since we've all transgressed God's law and we're all sinners, we are in need of the forgiveness of our sins. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, Scripture says. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, not sorry, not into the holy places made with hands, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, Jesus bore our sins, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, Tony Jones didn't address any of these passages. And yet all of these passages make it clear that Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus bore our sins. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Huh. Now, with these passages in mind, you kind of understand the metaphor that he's debunking. Yeah, there's some weaknesses in the metaphor. There's clearly some weaknesses in the metaphor. But he thinks that by destroying the metaphor, debunking the metaphor, that he can somehow overthrow these passages. And yet, he hasn't dared to touch a single one of them. That should tell you something, don't you think? Does the Bible teach that Jesus was our substitute? Clearly. Unambiguously. And it does so in a way that is offensive to a lot of modern and postmodern thinkers like Tony Jones. Tony Jones hasn't come up with a better atonement. All he's done is debunk a couple of metaphors and philosophize. In our next installment, you know, we'll conclude it, and we'll get to that, I don't know, sometime in the near future here at Fighting for the Faith. But there you have the biblical, um, you have the biblical passages that clearly teach that Jesus was our substitute, our Passover lamb. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. He, became, he who had no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is truly good news that I've read to you from God's word. Tony Jones, he has no good news to offer. He's just a postmodern hack. Debunking and deconstructing metaphors and believing that he's somehow doing theology. Not even close. 
All right, we're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We're running a little bit late. We got a sermon review we got to do from Vince Antonucci. Hang on, we'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. You spend some serious time staring at a digital screen, probably around eight hours a day. There's work, video games, surfing the web, and every other function of life on all our devices. Hey, we live in an age where everything is digital. It's just par for the course, right? But have you ever thought about the impact all that has on your eyes? All that screen time is going to affect your vision. Maybe now, maybe later, but it's gonna happen. We're talking everything from eye fatigue and headaches to eyes that are so dry and irritated, they could make even the techiest dude alive want to go analog. It's pretty hard to do the stuff you love if your eyes are feeling exhausted or burnt out. But it's not like less time in front of a screen is an option these days. So what do you do? It's like you need some crazy awesome invention that can help your eyes stay fresh and protect them so that you can get the most out of your digital consumption. Introducing Gunner Optics. Gunners are these super sweet computer glasses that make it easier and more comfortable to enjoy all your digital activities. There's seriously some NASA-grade stuff going on here, but basically, they have this uber-smart lens technology that improves your visual experience, protects your vision, and helps prevent wear and tear on your eyes. Gunner's yellow lenses filter out harsh artificial light, which helps you see better, and they relax your eyes and stop them from straining constantly. Plus, they help combat all those other nasty side effects of staring at screens all day, like eye fatigue and dryness. Your eyes do a lot for you. Return the favor with Gunner's. For more information about Gunners and to see a video with me wearing my pair of Gunners, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunners. That's G-U-N-N-A-R-S. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash Gunners. And thank you for your support. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. 
And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. See how long it takes you to spot the problem with this sermon. Shouldn't be hard if you've figured out the unsaid theme of today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Cue up the music here. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's um, today's story uh, comes to us via the Verve in Las Vegas, Nevada. Vince Antonucci presiding. The name of the story is Sleeping Ugly. I have no idea what this has to do with the Bible. Sound, doctrine, anything. Um, but, you know, Vince Antonucci is a good storyteller. You know, he has a way of drawing you into a story and making you feel great. Not the job of a pastor, Christian pastor for sure, but he does a good job at storytelling. So, let me, uh, I'm going to go ahead and kill the music here. So, Without any further ado, here is the story of Sleeping Ugly. This occurred during sermon time uh, on uh, April 23rd there at The Verve in Las Vegas. Here's Vincenzo Nucci. Here we go. Story uh, that a pastor named Tommy Oates made up and tells. He, he calls it the story of Sleeping Ugly. And he says that there are a lot more sleeping uglies in the world than there are sleeping beauties. Now, by the way, he did say the important stuff about this. This was a story made up by somebody. Yeah, you won't find this story in the Bible. Nor do I think the punchline of this story will you find in the Bible either. When you tell this story, you can't start out with once upon a time. Because this story didn't just happen once. And you can't start out with uh, long ago and far away because this story happens near and it happens now. In fact, it's probably happened to a lot of people in this room. And you can't start out, uh, there was born a little girl because it also happens to little boys. But for the sake of telling the story, I will start out. Once upon a time, in a land far away, there was born this little girl. And this little girl was actually of royal descent. And she was the descendant of a king. And therefore, this little girl, she was a princess. 
But when she was born, she was given to this family to raise her. And this family did not know that she was of royal descent. There were no signs of her royalty, and so they had no idea. Well, this kingdom that this family lived in, it it was kind of a magical kingdom. And in this magical kingdom, there were times where, like, you could do one thing and it would lead to something else. It it was almost like there was uh, spells. And as you might imagine, there were good spells, but there were also bad spells. And this little girl growing up, uh, she became the victim of a bad spell, of a sleeping spell. See, her parents didn't realize it, but in this kingdom, uh, if you said certain words to people, it it would have an impact on them. And and so growing up, uh, her parents, real early in life, started to say these words to her that started to put the spell on her. They said words like this. They said words like, you don't, can't, you aren't. You mustn't never think. You never will be. And they used words like ugly. They used words like unattractive. And they didn't realize it, but that whole time what they were doing is they were putting a spell on her. It was almost like there was this big spell spider that was suspended hovering over this girl. And every time they used words like that, it would like fling down some webs of this spell that she was getting caught up in. And so they would say like, you don't. And it would be like, the spell would come down on her. They would say, you can't. You mustn't never think. You won't ever. Ugly. So this is supposed to be a depiction of the problem that mankind faces that Jesus came to solve? Those words that deflate our self-esteem? Unattractive. And little by little, this girl was getting all meshed up in this bad sleeping spell. And she was known to to yawn quite frequently and to just kind of fall asleep. Other people besides her parents actually started putting this spell on her as well. They didn't realize what they were doing, but they said words that also contributed to this spell. Sometimes they used similar words to her parents. They would say, you aren't and you must not. This spell would be put on her. But they did other things. One of the things that they would do in this kingdom is something that they called joking. Like they would say things about uh, ugliness. They, they would say uh, jokes like, um, did you hear that she got a facelift? No, I didn't. Yeah, the crane broke. Ha, ha, ha. They would say, uh, did you hear she got a job at the drugstore? No, what'd she do there? She doesn't work inside. She works outside. She makes people sick, so they go in and get medicine. Ha, ha, ha. Did you hear somebody sent her picture into Ripley's Believe It or Not? No, what they do? They sent back a letter that said, we don't believe it. Ha, ha, ha. And these other people who knew her, they didn't realize it, but with every, every joke, it was like that spell was getting put on her even more. With every ha, pssst, ha, pssst, ha, pssst. They also did something uh, that they called in this kingdom, ignoring. And every time she was ignoring, a little bit, pshh, A little bit more of that spell would fall. And what happened is that gradually she became known to just nod off. 
And she would kind of uh, just sleep through her day. And she would go to school and, and, and she would just sleep through school. And, and, uh, and then she would take the bus ride home and she would just sleep the entire bus ride. But when she got home, what she started doing is she would just retreat back to her bedroom. And in her bedroom, uh, it, it was like she had heard all those words so many times that believe it or not, she was heard in her bedroom to say them to herself. She would look in the mirror and she, she would say, you aren't, you mustn't never think, you never will be, ugly, and little by little she fell into a deep, so the problem of mankind is that we've believed that we're ugly and that Satan has somehow deceived us into not recognizing that we're all princes and princesses? What on earth does this have to do with the real problem that we all face? Sin and its consequences. Remember I read that you know, from Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We don't need our esteems boosted. We need our sins forgiven. We're not victims. We're the perpetrators. Notice how this just turns us all into just innocent victims who've been lied to about our true nature. Dark sleep. And she slept through her days. She slept through her nights. She slept walked to school. She slept walk around her neighborhood. She slept played. She slept ate. She slept, drank, she slept, slept. Well, she would have continued like that forever, and that just would have been her story. But, but something happened at this point in her life that really needs to happen to people who fall into this kind of spell. Into her village came, you might be able to guess, a prince. One day, this prince came riding up on this white horse, and I mean, he was shiny, and he was brilliant, and, and all kinds of wide-awake beauties came running out to meet him, and they looked at him, and they said, you look like a prince, and he said, I am a prince, and they said, we want to welcome you to our village, and, and he said, well, I'm very glad to be here, and I'm glad to meet all of you, but the question I have is, do you have any sleeping uglies in your village, and they said, well, yeah, we do. There's one who lives in the village there, but why do you want to know about her? And he said, these are the people I came for. Could you take me to her? I said, okay, I guess. And so they started to bring him to this little girl's house. Now, I wish you could have been in her room when this prince arrived in her village and started to weave his way through the village to her house because something started to happen to that spell. It was like uh, the spell started to recognize that the one who had the power to undo it was in the vicinity. And the spell started to actually get tense. Instead of its usual just kind of lulling there, it started to emit this kind of low-level hum. And then as they took the prince and he started to weave through the roads of the village to her house, it got more tense. And he got really close to her house. And then he walked up the stairs to her porch. And then he knocked. And her parents opened the door, and they opened it, and they looked at her, this man, and they said, you look like a prince. He said, I am a prince. They said, well, well, welcome. He said, I'm glad to be here. I understand that there lives in this house a sleeping ugly. They said, well, yes, there is, but why would you want to see her? He said, she is the one 
I have come for. May I see her? They said, well, sure, she's upstairs sleeping. And, and so they took her upstairs uh, to her room. And man, the, the spell in her room, and it's just going crazy. And, and they opened the door and she's laying there sleeping. And they said, that's her. And he said, would you mind if I had a few moments alone with her? And they said, that, that would be fine. And, and, and so he closed the door and he walked over to her. And um, there was something about this prince. I don't know what we should call it. We could call it magic. But he had this power about him. It was almost as if there was um, like this power in his eyes. It almost looked like there were like golden rays of sunshine coming out of his eyes. So it was amazing. And so he walked up to this bed and he looked at her. You know, Disney does a far better job of telling fairy tales than Vince Antonucci, although he's a good storyteller. I mean... The problem is, is that his job is to preach the word and teach what God's word says. Based upon what little theology I'm able to construct from this story that he's telling, I can't find any biblical passages that teach this doctrine. He looked at her really deeply and something started to happen to that spell. As he looked at her with with those rays coming out of his eyes, it, it was like strands of that spell started to snap. I mean, he looked at her and it was like, and he looked at her some more. And then he started to speak and he knew exactly the right words to say. He looked at her and he said, ugly? You're not ugly. He said, you are a princess. He said, I recognize you. You are royalty. He says, you're wonderful. You have an amazing destiny before you. And the, the, the spell is breaking up. Wow, you're, you're, you're wonderful and you have an amazing destiny. Wow. Huh. Sounds like the purpose-driven gospel, but it doesn't sound like the biblical gospel. But, but she's still pretty much asleep. And, and so what he did is he realized that she needed more magic. And so he reached out and he touched her. He put his hand on her shoulder, and he just shook her very gently. He said, wake up. Wake up, little girl. Wake up. And the spell started breaking even more, but she couldn't quite wake up. And so he did in that moment what princes do in moments like this. He said, you need the strongest magic of all. What you need is a kiss. And he puckered up. And he bent down and he kissed her and pow! It was like, and the cell starts breaking up like crazy and all kinds of things are happening and her eyes start fluttering a little bit and some, some color starts coming to her cheeks and she's a little bit, uh, and he says, I guess you need another one. And now I'm going to point something out here. He's not even going to be true to his own metaphor. Again, I, what do we make of this? The job of a pastor is to preach the word. Are you learning any Christian doctrine? Are you learning anything about what the Bible teaches? Not really. And so he puckered up again and kissed, pow! Like, like the spell is just breaking up. And finally, she sits up and she's like, hello? And he says, hello, princess. She says, princess? He says, that's right. I recognize you. You're a princess. She says, I am? He says, you're a princess. And this spell is just breaking up like crazy. And he says, I want to take you and I want to show you to your parents. She says, okay. And and so he helps her out of the bed and 
They walked to the door. Well, her parents were standing at the door because of all the commotion that they were hearing in that room. And they had just been standing there listening in. And so uh, he opens the door and they see this girl and they say, who is she? And he's like, this is your daughter. And they're like, but, but, but she looks so different. And what, what was really interesting is this prince's magic was so strong that it had affected the parents standing out there. And it was like there was rays of sunshine starting to come out of their eyes. And they were seeing her completely different. They're like, but, but, but she looks like a princess. And he's like, she is a princess. Of course she looks like one. And they said, but she looks wonderful. And he said, she is wonderful. And they said, she, she's amazing. He said, she is amazing. And they're like, Wow. Well, about that time, the entire village had started kind of congregating outside of the house because they heard all this noise coming from inside. And, and so people started to knock on their door. And the parents went downstairs and they opened the door and they said, excuse me, but, but what's happening in there? We're hearing all this noise. And they said, you need to see our daughter. Something has happened to her. And so they bring her downstairs and they bring her out in the front porch. And then the prince's magic was so strong that like the entire villages, all their eyes were starting to glow and rays were starting to come out of them. And they look at her and they're like, she looks like a princess. And the parents are like, she is. She's a princess. And they're like, she's beautiful. And the parents are like, she is beautiful. And everyone says, we want to kiss her. Could, could we kiss her? And the parents are like, well, I guess. I guess everybody line up. And everybody lined up. And they had their daughter come out. And one by one, everybody in that village just had to. They, they just each gave her a kiss. And, and man, like, I mean, that, that spell just hightailed it right out of that village. It was gone. And it was amazing. And this girl, the sleeping ugly, she was now wide, wide awake. Something amazing happened. Word started to spread about what happened in that village. And it turns out there are sleeping uglies in villages all around that kingdom. And so what happened is people started bringing their sleeping uglies to this village. And they would say, we understand that in your village, you have learned how to cast out the, the bad spell, the sleeping ugly spell. And they said, we did, we learned. And, and so they taught people from other villages how to cast out the spell. They said, man, it's, it's how you look at people. It's the words you speak. You just need to let people know who they really are. And all these sleeping uglies that were... So you just need to let people know who they really are. That's all it takes, and then the spell is broken. Hmm. I thought the problem of sin was addressed not by Jesus telling us who we really are, because that would be telling us that we're all sinners, but Jesus dying on the cross for our sins... In fact, Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 9, reveals who we all really are. Romans chapter 3. So what then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all, for we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throats are an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Notice Paul didn't say that, you know, that all are 
royalty who've fallen asleep, victims of of words that tear down their self-esteem. And they, you know, that that's not what he said. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, picking up on the same theme, says uh, Paul writing to the church, uh, church in Ephesus tells the Christians there, you were once dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the curse of, uh, course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Hmm. That's you know I'm not that's not the same thing that Vince is preaching here. He's preaching something distinctly different. Brought to the village, their sleeping spells were undone, and they would go back to their villages, and and word continued to spread throughout the entire kingdom, and then throughout the entire world, and eventually, <laughs> there were no more sleeping uglies. And everyone lived happily ever after. And that, really, that was just the beginning of the story. And that's the story of Sleeping Ugly. Now, as you might have imagined, uh, that story is kind of a, a parable. Parable is like a, a metaphor. It's a story with like, there's more meaning to it than, than meets the eye. And just in case you didn't get it. Yeah, I get that. Uh, we've been talking about metaphors and parables all day long. Um, well, actually, metaphors and allegory. The problem is this, is if a, par- uh, a, a parable kind of understands that there, this is a story that's laid alongside of a true idea and that the story helps us understand something true. I'm not detecting any sound biblical teaching here in the parable that you've told I can't seem to lay it alongside of any passage of Scripture that teaches what you're teaching. The meaning of the story is this. Man, our world is full, full of sleeping uglies. And what I mean is our world is full of people who have become convinced that you can't. You don't. You mustn't never think. Hmm. So people who've been told they can't be great. Or they can't do this. or Oh, I see. Okay. This would be a consequence or a result of our sin, but this isn't the root. You never will be unwanted, unlovable, ugly, unattractive. The world is full of them. In fact, my guess is, we probably have a bunch of sleeping uglies in our room. And and I'll just be honest with you and tell you that when I look in the mirror, sometimes I see a sleeping ugly because, man, there are a lot of times where that's exactly how I feel about myself. Yeah, I can't relate to that. Um, When I look in the mirror of God's law, I see a sinner in need of God's forgiveness, mercy, and grace. Um. I mean, we could talk about that. That's a Christian way to discuss things here. But what you're talking about, Vince, I I have no idea what you're talking about. Because the the problem that Jesus came to solve 
is a problem that we all have. I don't have this problem that you're describing. I don't suffer from sleeping ugliness. Um, so, I mean, if this is the problem that Jesus came to solve, I don't need Jesus then. But for the good of our world, a great prince has come. And this prince, he looked at us in a different way. And he said different words about us. He came with this message. And his message was that every person is valuable. That every person comes from royal descent. Mm. Yeah, I just read from Ephesians chapter 2 that every one of us was by nature an object of God's wrath because of our sin. We were born dead in trespasses and sins that we inherited from Adam and Eve. Um, Jesus said to the Pharisees, um, you want to do your father's will, and they took issue with that. See John chapter 8, and Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. So I, I don't understand. Jesus, when he said to the Pharisees that their father was the devil, he wasn't affirming that they were from royalty. He was affirming the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of original sin. And the pro, the solution for that is that we have to be reborn. We have to be regenerated. We have to go from being dead in trespasses and sins to alive in Christ. That every person has this incredible worth and value and is to be treasured as a prince, as a princess. He came with this message that there was new life available. That people who had slept, walked through their entire life, who had slept, played, and slept, worked, and slept, schooled, and, and slept, ate, and slept, drank, and slept, slept, that, that they could wake up and that they could live life wide, wide awake. And that there was love and joy and peace and an adventurous life waiting for them. If they would just say yes, if they would just... Now, no, this is an example. If you get the problem wrong, the, then the gospel you preach is a false gospel. This is a surface treatment of sin, and it doesn't even address the core problem. As a result of it, the gospel he's preaching is not the biblical gospel. This is a false gospel. Wake up and accept it. And that's exactly what we need, because the reality is, the truth is, and too many of us have fallen asleep. And you know what I mean. I mean, try this. Ask a kid, go down like to, to our kids' ministry after, after service and ask kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know what you'll never hear from a kid? Mm, pension plan, health care, 40-hour cap on my work week. You know, that's never what you're going to hear, right? But somewhere along the line, we lost our dreams and, and we settled. You know, we, we just kind of... Hmm. Notice he's not backing any of this up from Scripture. So our big problem is that we've lost our dreams. We grew up and we settled. Have fallen into this rut. I'm uh, kind of sort of from Buffalo, New York area, and um, Buffalo's right next to Canada. And uh, in Canada, there are just two seasons. There's winter and there's July. 
and um, it is very cold and very wet in Canada. And then when July comes, as you might imagine, there's lots of water as all the snow kind of unfreezes and gets wet and stuff like that. And and uh, and um, what happens is uh, ruts form in the roads because you have these wet roads, and especially in small towns with dirt roads, there's these long ruts that form. And then August rolls around, and everything gets cold again, and those ruts can actually freeze in the road. And it's so bad that there's this one town in Canada, this is true, that has a big sign when you come in to their town. And the sign says, choose your ruts carefully. You may be in them for the next 20 years. (laughs) But it's true, right? A lot of us would say, what are you talking about? What does this have to do with what the Bible teaches? In fact, Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 9, reveals who we all really are. Romans chapter 3. So what then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throats are an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Notice Paul didn't say that, you know, that all are royalty who've fallen asleep, victims of of words that tear down their self-esteem. And they, you know, that that's not what he said. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, picking up on the same theme, says uh, Paul writing to the church, uh, church in Ephesus tells the Christians there, you were once dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the curse of, uh, course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Hmm. That's, you know, I'm not, that's not the same thing that Vince is preaching here. He's preaching something distinctly different. Brought to the village, their sleeping spells were undone. And they would go back to their villages and, and word continued to spread throughout the entire kingdom and then throughout the entire world. And eventually, <laughs> there were no more sleeping uglies. And everyone lived happily ever after. And that, really, that was just the beginning of the story. And that's the story of Sleeping Ugly. Now, as you might have imagined, uh, that story is kind of a a parable. Parable is like a a metaphor. It's a story with like, there's more meaning to it than, than meets the eye. And just in case you didn't get it. Yeah, I get that. Uh, we've been talking about metaphors and parables all day long. Um, well, actually, metaphors and allegory. The problem is this, is if a, par- uh, a, a parable kind of understands that the, this is a story that's laid alongside of a true idea. 
and that the story helps us understand something true. I'm not detecting any sound biblical teaching here in the parable that you've told. I can't seem to lay it alongside of any passage of Scripture that teaches what you're teaching. The meaning of the story is this. Man, our world is full, full of sleeping uglies. And what I mean is our world is full of people who have become convinced that you can't. You don't. You mustn't never think. Hmm. So people who've been told they can't be great or they can't do this or, oh, I see. Okay. This would be a consequence or a result of our sin, but this isn't the root. You never will be unwanted, unlovable, ugly, unattractive. The world is full of them. In fact, my guess is we probably have a bunch of sleeping uglies in our room. And I'll just be honest with you and tell you that when I look in the mirror, sometimes I see a sleeping ugly because, man, there are a lot of times where that's exactly how I feel about myself. Yeah, I can't relate to that. Um, When I look in the mirror of God's law, I see a sinner in need of God's forgiveness, mercy, and grace. Um, I mean, we could talk about that. That's a Christian way to discuss things here. But what you're talking about, Vince, I I have no idea what you're talking about. Because the problem that Jesus came to solve is a problem that we all have. I don't have this problem that you're describing. I don't suffer from sleeping ugliness. Um, so, I mean, if this is the problem that Jesus came to solve, I don't need Jesus then. But for the good of our world, a great prince has come. And this prince, he looked at us in a different way. And he said different words about us. He came with this message. And his message was that every person is valuable. That every person comes from royal descent. Mm. Yeah, I just read from Ephesians chapter 2 that every one of us was by nature an object of God's wrath because of our sin. We were born dead in trespasses and sins that we inherited from Adam and Eve. Um, Jesus said to the Pharisees, um, you want to do your father's will. And they took issue with that. See John chapter eight. And Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. So I, I don't understand Jesus. When he said to the Pharisees that their father was the devil, he wasn't affirming that they were from royalty. He was affirming the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of original sin. And the pro the solution for that is, is that we have to be reborn. We have to be regenerated. We have to go from being dead in trespasses and sins to alive in Christ. That every person has this incredible worth and value and is to be treasured as a prince, as a princess. He came with this message that there was new life available. That people who had slept, walked through their entire life, who had slept played and slept, worked and slept, schooled and and slept, ate and slept, drank and slept, slept, that that they could wake up and and that they could live life wide, wide awake and and that there was love and joy and peace and, and an adventurous life waiting for them 
if they would just say yes, if they would just win. Now, no, this is an example. If you get the problem wrong, the, then the gospel you preach is a false gospel. This is a surface treatment of sin, and it doesn't even address the core problem. As a result of it, the gospel he's preaching is not the biblical gospel. This is a false gospel. Wake up and accept it. And that's exactly what we need because the reality is, the truth is, and too many of us have fallen asleep. And you know what I mean. I mean, try this. Ask a kid. Go down like, to, to our kids' ministry after, after service and ask kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know what you'll never hear from a kid? Eh, pension plan, health care, 40-hour cap on my work week. You know, that's never what you're going to hear, right? But somewhere along the line, we lost our dreams and, and we settled. You know, we, we just kind of... Hmm. Notice he's not backing any of this up from Scripture. So our big problem is that we've lost our dreams. We grew up and we settled. Have fallen into this rut. I'm uh, kind of sort of from Buffalo, New York area, and um, Buffalo's right next to Canada. And uh, in Canada, there are just two seasons. There's winter and there's July. And um, it is very cold and very wet in Canada. And then when July comes, as you might imagine, there's lots of water as all the snow kind of unfreezes and gets wet and stuff like that. And, and, uh, and um, what happens is uh, ruts form in the roads because you have these wet roads, and especially in small towns with dirt roads, there's these long ruts that form. And then August rolls around, and everything gets cold again, and those ruts can actually freeze in the road. And it's so bad that there's this one town in Canada, this is true, that has a big sign when you come into their town. And the sign says, choose your ruts carefully. You may be in them for the next 20 years. <laughs> but it's true, right? A lot of us would say, what are you talking about? What does this have to do with what the Bible teaches? That's me. It's funny, but it's not. Because I've been in a rut, maybe for 20 years, maybe for some of those two years, maybe some of those 40 years. I've been in a rut for a long time. Have you fallen into a riot? You know, a lot of us, we live this monotonous. So Jesus came to save us from ruts. Monotonous life. It's like we wake up. So Jesus came to save us from the monotony of life. Get out of bed, go to work, come home, eat dinner, watch TV for three hours, go to sleep. Get up, eat breakfast, go to work, come home, eat dinner, watch TV for three hours, go to sleep. It's infuriating in its monotony until finally someone snaps, right? Dad comes home, he's tired, he's frustrated. Dad yells at mom, mom yells at older brother, older brother yells at younger sister, younger sister kicks the dog, dog bites the cat, cat scratches the baby, baby bites the head off the Barbie doll. And, and wouldn't it be easier if dad just came in, bit the head off the Barbie doll himself and saved all the in-between steps? But some of us are there. We've been in this rut for so long, and it's like it's, it's infuriating in its monotony. You know, it's like, how long can I live like this? Might this be my entire existence? Can I die of boredom? And today, what Jesus is saying to you, the reason he has you here this morning is because he's saying... So Jesus is saying something to us. And Jesus brought these people there to the verb. So they could hear this message? Which Jesus is this? 
hand me the keys. Hand me the keys and I will get you out of your rut. He is saying, wake up. Uh, So wake up so Jesus can take the wheel. Maybe saying, we're not going to do that anymore. We're not doing that. There's a verse in the Bible that I I love. Um, It's in the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. And if you have a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians. If you don't have one, it's totally fine. We put the verses on the screen for you. If you don't own an easy translation of the Bible, um, I don't, we don't think that's fine. We'd love for you to have a Bible, so we give what, them away for free. What's the point of having an easy-to-read translation of the Bible when you don't even really preach from it? Free, um, shot by our Velcro bar on the way out today. Uh, free Bibles galore. Just grab a Bible. No catch, no cost. Um, but check out this verse, Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verse 14. We'll put it on the screen. It says, Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Out of context, I mean, serious, what do do you think is going on here in Ephesians 5? It says, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. If I were to put this into context, do you think it would mention anything about sleeping ugly? Let's put it back in context. Um... Ephesians 5, verse 1, after Paul spends time explaining the biblical gospel of Christ and him crucified for our sins and his shed blood on the cross, Ephesians 5, 1 then says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let therefore no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Hmm. When I put this passage back in context, it doesn't say anything about sleeping uglies, or people who've fallen asleep uh, because their life is in a rut. doesn't say anything about Jesus waking you up to take you out of a rut so that he can make your life exciting and adventurous. Nothing like that at all. Jesus is saying today, man, I can wake you up. And I can give you a new life if you would just let me shine on you. If you would let me wake up you up. And if you would live your life in such a way that you orient your life. Allah, let me shine on you. Orient your life in such a way. Notice all the uh, imperatives here. Um, 
are first preceded by the indicatives of what Christ has done for us. I, so that I am shining on you, that you are living in a relationship with me, I can make your life new. He's saying, I can make your life new. And, and not pretend new. You know what I mean by pretend new? Well, you know, there, there's some people that's like, I think that's pretend new. You know, it's not, it's not really new. He can make your life really new. You, you know what I mean, pretend new. Have you ever been to um, the, the car washes where after you get your car washed, they spray the inside of your car with a scent and you can choose? And one of the scents is um, new car scent. Have you seen this? And so your car smells like, like who is this going to fool? You know, you, you drive over to pick up your friend and, and he jumps into your 1979 Malibu Classic with uh, one quarter panels duct tape and the, the ceilings, all the fabric is sagging in on your head. And he gets in, he goes, is this car new? <laughs> it's like, yeah, pop the Andy Gibb tape in the uh, 8-track. Let's go. It's new. Right? It, not pretend new. Jesus can really give you a new life, a new life. Now, a couple weeks ago on Easter, I, um, I mentioned briefly how I became a Christian, that I grew up completely non-Christian background, I mean, completely. My, I think I said my mother's Jewish, father's a professional poker player here in Vegas. And um, I ended up in college studying the Bible, trying to disprove it and eventually realize it's true. Uh, you can prove it's true. That the, and, and there's this God who loves me, wants a relationship with me, wants to give me life and take me to heaven. And I said, yes. I mentioned that. What, what I didn't mention... Pelagianism at this point, the way he's describing it. Um, yeah, the Bible's true, but you're not preaching it rightly so that we know the truth of what it says. A couple weeks ago was, what's happened in my life since? Now, I need to tell you, before that, there were a lot of ways I think that my life was like, it was okay. It was okay. Um, but it, it was boring. It was, it was okay boring. The truth is, even the things I was living for, the, the things I was like, man, this is the good stuff, or, or, or the goals I had, someday I'm going to have this, I'm going to do this, even that was pretty boring. If I was being honest, I'd be like, even the best things, are, they're not that special. They're not that great. Even my goals, if I achieve them, eh, right? My life was pretty boring and occasionally awful. It was like boring with intermittent awful. Uh, you know, occasionally something bad would happen like it does for all of us. Or I had certain things in my life, like we all do, that were like just awful. And so it, it was boring and occasionally awful. Whenever awful times happen, I, I personally had no... Um, good way of dealing with it. But honestly, what I would do is I would contemplate suicide. Not because not I was such a messed up person, I don't think. It was just like, what's the point? My, my life is boring and, and occasionally awful. Is it really worth being bored all the time so once in a while I get to be awful? You know, it's like, why, why live? Like, I don't get it. And then I met Jesus, this prince. And, um, and, and, I heard him saying, wake up, let, let me shine. You live your life in a relationship with me and I can change it. And I said, yes. And, and I will tell you that my life uh, has gone from boring to amazing. And I mean it. I love my life. I love it. I mean, it, it's great. Uh, so Jesus solved your boredom problem. <sighs> wow. Uh, and, and occasionally amazing. Like, like the last 20, 21 years, I've got to do things um, and I've got to see things. I've got to be a part of things like 
I, I, don't, I don't understand, like, why I get to be a part of these things. And, and the reason is because I'm following Jesus. It's not because there's anything special about me. It's because I'm following Jesus, and he has me on this adventure, and, and I get to do things. I'm like, I can't believe this. And I'll, I'll tell you more stories as our years go on together, but unbelievable things I've gotten to do. But, but here's the really cool part. Does my life still have boring parts? Yes, but... The most fun part to me of following Jesus is that even the boring parts of life are no longer boring. Let me give you some examples. So like um, getting, uh, getting your hair cut. I don't know about you. To me, that was always like one of the... I mean, sign me up. I, the, the Jesus that cures boredom. Wow, that's quite a Jesus. The most boring thing. I'm going to sit there for a half hour and what do I say to this person? That's boring. But ever since I started following Jesus, when I get my hair cut, I go in with this idea of... Um, how can I, in a completely non-obnoxious way, just in a cool, normal way, how can I communicate to this person who's cutting my hair that, like, God loves them and, and maybe let them know about what God's done in my life? How can I invite them to church in a way that they'd be like, oh, that's, that's normal. That was- wow, that sounds so adventurous. I'm glad Jesus cured your boredom problem with that. You know, hair, you know adventurous haircutting wasn't weird. And so it's, a, it's like this little mini adventure for 30 minutes. I'm getting my hair cut thinking, like, like, what's my opportunity just to say something, you know, just to make them go, huh, I need to think about that. Huh, you're different. And, and so like, it's like this kind of strategic adventure I'm on for 30 minutes. It's not boring. Or, or uh, washing dishes. In my opinion, washing dishes is like bottom of the chore food chain. Like, it's just gross and I hate it. It's boring. But it's not boring anymore. Because when I wash dishes, I'm like, okay, this is my time. I'm going to pray for really big things. So Jesus solved your boredom problem while you were washing dishes. Whew, that's, well, that's some adventures um, there. Um, sign me up. And, and so I pray for things while I'm washing dishes that are really important to me or that I think are really important to God and to this world. And I don't know about you, but I honestly believe that my prayers impact things. Like they make a difference. So when I wash dishes, I am changing the world. <laughs> Literally, I believe that. Boring? Kinda, but not really. It's an adventure. It's like, man, what's going to happen because I washed dishes today, you know? And, and so the boring parts of life, they're not really boring. They're kind of adventurous. Do I still have bad things happen? Yes. They're still intermittent awful, but it's different because I, I used to have no way of handling I didn't know what to do with it. What do you do? Now I know what to do. Like, I have this God who I trust who, who is, you know, it's like a kid. You know, a kid has bad things happen, but it's like you trust your parents, they're going to take care of it. You know, you don't have to worry about who's going to pay the bills. We're, you know, well, that's my parents' job. And, and I've got this guy I can trust. And, man, it, it's changed how I deal with it. There, there's a verse in the Bible I want to show you, Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. Um, and it's a cool verse that maybe you should, like, memorize or something. Remember five, six weeks ago, we talked about memorizing different verses. Wow, we're going to get a whole nother verse out of context verses and the power that can be. Philippians 4, 7 says this, um, and the peace of God, which transcends all... Notice it begins with a conjunction, and the peace of... That should cue you in that there's a lot more going on in the context here. All understanding, so it's saying, which doesn't make sense, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And and so the idea is, when things are really bad, that if you kind of are living life with God, if you're letting Christ shine on you, that that God gives you a peace that doesn't make sense. Like you lose your job, things are going bad, your marriage is struggling. And it's like, I don't know why, but I'm okay. Like I never would have used to have been okay, but I'm, and I've talked to so many of you who are like, man, that's exactly what's happened to me. Like since I, I brought God into my life and all, like I don't know why, but I'm okay when things are bad. There's this peace that doesn't make sense. 
I love um, how Jesus described him. This is one of the verses we mentioned here the most. It's where we got the name of our church. But I love how Jesus described why he came from heaven to earth. In John chapter 10, verse 10, we'll put it on the screen. He says, I have come that they... Ten, John 10, 10, out of context, we're not getting a clear biblical teaching in this story. They, as you, may have life and have it to the full. I have come that day that you may have life and have it. So, like if you interviewed Jesus and said, Jesus, why in the world were you willing to leave heaven? It, it was a- so that people wouldn't be bored while washing the dishes. They can have an adventure of a lifetime at the haircutters. I, I, I came so that you might have life and have it to the full. Jesus, why did you come to earth? I mean, this, in a lot of ways, this is kind of a cesspool now, you know. Why were you willing to deal with all this? I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. Jesus, what is your intention for us? Like like there's a bunch of people sitting in this room right now, 2012, Las Vegas, Verve Church. What is your intention for our lives? I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Jesus is saying to you today, wake up. Wake up. Wake up. There is life to be had. And you might just be missing it. You might be sleepwalking through your life when there is life to be had. If you would let me wake you up, if you would let me touch you, if you would let me shine on you so that you live your life every day. Let you, let let me wake you up. Okay. Not just with a yes, I believe in Jesus, but you live your life in a way that you are oriented. So Jesus is shining on you. You are living in a relationship with him. He will wake you up. And he's like, man, there's adventure. Does the cross make any sense in this context? Adventure to be had. Like I have an adventurous life for you, not the other people in the church. You, I I have joy for you. I have a better marriage for you. I I have a future for you, a plan for your life. Wake up. Don't sleep through your life. Give me the keys. Let's get you out of the rut. And let's give you new life. Not pretend life. Not pretend new life. New life. That's what Jesus is saying. And I guess now it's on you, right? The decision's on you. The next step is for you to decide. Maybe there, there are some of you in this room who um, you've never woken up. Like, like you've never said yes to Jesus, and he's still kind of shaking you by the shoulders, saying, wake up, wake up, wake up. And, and maybe you've come here a few times or a bunch of times, and you're still just like, let me sleep more. And, and maybe what you need to decide today is, all right, I, I'm done sleeping. Yes. Yes, I want Jesus in my life. I want him to shine on me. I, want to really, I, I, don't, I don't know what all that means, but I want that. I don't know what to call it, but I want it. And if that's you, if that's what you're thinking right now, I, I just want to encourage you, talk to somebody before you leave. You know, don't leave with that, thinking that. Like, like, talk to somebody. There's all kinds of easy people to talk to here. I'm one of them. Uh, just grab me, like, out in the lobby and say, hey, I want to say yes. Like, can I talk to you about that right now? Can we get together? Can I email with you? Like, like I want that. And let's talk. We're uh, at the Velcro bar. You know, we, we try to put some of our nicest people back there who are easy to talk to and who, who kind of know the next steps, who, who aren't like, I don't know what to tell you, but like, are like, no, I can help you through this. And, and so go, just go back and say, hey, I want to take that next step. Like, like help me. What, what do I do? And, and they'd love to talk to you. 
for others of us, um, the next step. So the next step towards getting out of the rut and having an adventurous life, adventure while washing dishes, adventure at the haircutters. Yeah, I got to take next steps towards that. Not repentance and the forgiveness of sins. I mean, I don't know what, what's the point of this Jesus exactly? Um, maybe the next step is going to the retreat Friday night and Saturday morning. I mean, we have this great opportunity. There's a church in Ohio. Um, nope, Kentucky. Kentucky. One of them. It doesn't really matter. If you've been to them, you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> but uh, anybody from Ohio or Kentucky offended? Okay. Um, but anyway, uh, they, they said, we want to do something nice for your church. I said, oh, we do all kinds of outreach to our city. They said, no, 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 for the people, go to your church. And I said, what do you want to do? And they said, can we put on a retreat for you? So they're paying, um, they let me choose a speaker and they let me choose a, a host for it. And um, so, but they're like giving us a retreat. We have a great speaker, a great guy, a fun guy coming to kind of host the whole thing. It's going to be a blast. Your kids are going to take care of food. But, but the cool thing is um, for those of us who are like, this all sounds good to me, but I don't get it. I don't even know what that looks like. I don't have the framework to know what would it look like for me to start that relationship with God? What would it look like for Jesus to shine on me? I, I don't know what that means. Be here on Friday night and Saturday morning. And it's going to be kind of like coming to a bunch of church service in a row, but we're going to do some fun interactive things, some games, and some really cool talks and um, some discussion. And it's going to be really good. And you will leave here on Saturday going, man, I'm so good. I'm so glad I invested my time in that. And so maybe that's your next step, to go back right now, give the five bucks or whatever, and say, I'll be here Friday night. Um, That would be a great next step. I don't know because it's to you, right? You have to decide what to do with this. But I know this. Right now, right now, Jesus is saying to you, wake up. Wake up, O sleeper, and let Christ shine on you. Let's pray. Well, there you go. I don't know what we're praying for. Um, Wow. So do you think anybody who prayed, oh, you know, Lord, wake me up. Um, You know, I'm, I'm tired of my rut. I want some adventure. Did they go from being dead in trespasses and sins to being born again? Were they regenerated as a result of that gospel? That message? That story? Three verses out of context? And a long fairy story that it, you know, the point of it doesn't even, isn't even taught in scripture? Wow. Yeah, I'm at the moment kind of speechless. It's sad. Pray for the folks there at the Verve. They're not being taught the truth. They aren't hearing about their great God and Savior who bled and died for their sins. They're being told that Jesus is the solution for boredom. Jesus doesn't promise to be the solution for boredom here on this earth. I mean, what kind of lame Savior is that anyway? This isn't taught in Scripture. This is something completely different. And the folks there have been deceived and are continuing to be deceived by a man who isn't teaching God's word, which is his job to do as a pastor. Mm. Truly sad. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.